Welcome to Looking Backward, where we analyze an entrepreneur's past to learn about the skill set, experiences, and network that they have built over the years to put them on the trajectory that they're on now. I'm your host, Chad Sakonchik. Hello and welcome again. I have Travis Devitt today with Skill Incubator. A, it is a investing platform education course uh, set up for uh, cryptocurrencies, but also normal investing. Uh, Travis, I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you kind of give us the high level 30,000 foot kind of uh, elevator pitch of what, what Skill Incubator is and why yeah. people should care. For sure. Thanks for having me, Chad. So yeah, so Skill Incubator basically is a a community of investors who, um, you know, pay to be part of a community of investors who are focused on a couple different asset classes. It started uh, with just cryptocurrency uh, with my business partner, Chris, who started that. I came on as a mentor in the past year, and now I'm providing the stock market uh, ideas and education. So we have both online courses for people to learn about how to trade and invest in these assets. And we also have the community where we do weekly market updates, trade ideas. They can see, you know, how I'm investing my own capital and things like that. So it's really just a place for people to learn and become better investors. And so do, do they subscribe to this or do they just buy courses piecemeal or how does that work? Yeah, they can do both. So we sell standalone courses, but we also have our paid investor community, which is a, a subscription, monthly subscription. And so some people do both. Some people just do one or the other. Um, I've been spending a lot of my time over the last year building some online courses about stock market investing from the ground up because I felt like, you know, what was out there is is pretty bad. And that's actually something that I've been thinking about for the last probably five, six, seven years. And so you know, finally, in the last year, took some time off of uh, the previous stuff that I was doing to to go build these courses and to to become a mentor in this community and start to um, you know, basically help more people learn how to be good investors. So this is a kind of explain like I'm five course that you're developing. You know, it starts that way. And I take people from the very beginning, people who are total novices. And then I have parts of the course that get a lot more advanced. So for people who um, either have gone that far or they already, you know, are pretty deep into investing, they can get really deep into what it means to you know, do deep research on different investments and in stocks, uh, even put together financial models, break down financials, how to find great winning stocks, things like that. So it gets, it gets pretty deep. Um, and so I pretty much have the range covered from beginner to advanced. Okay. Um, so let's go back in time. Let's take the Wayback Machine and figure out what uh, in your past, you know, when you started and everything that has kind of built your skill set and experience to get you to this point. So let's, uh, let's go back. What year are we going back to or what, what age are we going back to? Wow. Yeah. We'd have to go back to, I mean, if we're talking the very first time I ever actually worked for money, it was probably when I was, you know, 13 years old, this would have been back in like the mid nineties and okay. literally the classic story of mowing lawns, like going door to door, asking neighbors if I could mow their lawn for 20 bucks. Right. Just, uh, yeah. learning the value of, of, of hustle. And, um, just having a little spending money in my pocket. So it wasn't even. So, so what's to... funny, what's funny about this is that um, I, I don't think you've actually listened to any of the episodes uh, yet, but I, I keep having it, this, this, um, you know, I, men do as children or teenagers do mowing yards and, and landscaping and women do babysitting as teenagers. <laughs> That's like, that is like 
pretty much cut and dry black and white like there are no alternatives yeah um so that yeah that's, that's that's really interesting so uh continue yeah no it makes sense i mean i weren't i wasn't even old enough yet to actually get a real job i think you have to be 15 in texas to actually get a, a get hired by a real company otherwise it's like you know you're violating child labor laws so right um so i did the lawn mowing thing um here and there and uh, once I turned 15, I pretty much, you know, I came from a family that was lower middle class, uh, constantly worried about money, constantly struggling with money issues. And so it was like, I knew just internally that I needed to get out and start making money if I ever wanted to have my own car to drive or, you know, have spending money. And so um, as soon as I turned 15, I think literally the, that week, I went and applied for my first job, got my first job as a neighborhood lifeguard, um, okay. first official job anyway. So. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a pretty boring job. You know, you're just sitting in a chair and making sure no one, no one drowns. I mean, you do have to get some certification. So uh, I spent, you know, a month getting certified for that. Um, I don't know if I could have actually saved you just anyone have the, in the pool. Then you just have the kids, then you just have the kids haggling you. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, most of your day is just like dealing with bratty kids. And like, I think yeah, I was a wiry 15 year old. I'm not even sure if I could have uh, saved anyone and they started drowning. I mean, I, I guess I could have pulled them up to the top of the water maybe but yeah <laughs> that <laughs> but, is an you know, interesting concept is that is that they you know the the amount of skills that they give teenage lifeguards is not really a lot and right. they're also not fully developed yet to be able to actually pick up you know if you've got a, a larger individual in the water i guess in the water they're not that heavy but um anyway yeah, the buoyancy brand. does help. So, and you've got yeah. some flo flotation devices. And I guess really the biggest thing is just to just to keep order. And if someone does look like they're struggling, you can you know uh, divert attention to that. So that's the biggest right. thing. But, right. Right. Uh, yeah, it was a fun. Tell job. tell someone to call nine one one. Exactly. <laughs> Do CPR if if absolutely necessary. So. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, got, got a bunch of sunburns doing that. Um, but, uh, that was a pretty boring job. I did that in the neighborhood and then I did that for YMCA, um, for maybe about a year or so. Did you do, did, were you a YMCA lifeguard or you were also yeah. a swim instructor? Uh, I just did lifeguarding. So I, I did the, I did the lifeguarding and the swim instructing. So I, I remember I having Ooh. to teach, uh, adults, beginner swimming, uh, Bad and man. having a, a large muscular, you know, 200 plus pound dude in waist deep water. And I'm, I'm holding him on his back and I'm like, okay, I'm going to let go. And he's like, don't you let go. Don't you dare let go. I'm like, dude, if you sink, just stand up. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, that was interesting. Anyway. So yeah. YMCA, man, YMCA is a great place to learn how to swim. And, um, anyway, so plug to YMCA, but it is, yeah, they, they run a tight ship there. I think it's yeah. pretty well managed from what I can tell. So. Yeah. That, so did that. And then eventually kind of got sick of lifeguarding just because it was, you, you know, it's time goes by so slow when you're just sitting in that chair and we yeah. were basically being paid minimum wage. Um, so I basically moved over to a, another minimum wage ish job at, uh, at what was called Randall's then I think now it's called Safeway grocery store and started bagging groceries. Um, and Basically, you know, was really just trying to hustle for tips. You know, you you bag people's groceries and you would push their cart out sometimes for for some of the older older folks and hope to people get a dollar. Tip the, $2. People tip the uh, the grocery cart guy. You know, you'd be surprised, and I don't know if it's changed now, but back then, uh, a decent amount of people would tip. Um, 
Wow. Okay. And so that was a nice way to earn a couple extra bucks an hour. Yeah. Um, but it, but it was, I wouldn't call it a great job, but yeah. uh, it was something different. I did get my first promotion ever though. I moved from the bagger to a cashier. So I was actually, you know, scanning groceries and punching in produce codes. Uh, Were you as fast years. as that guy at the the union, the Wendy's union? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think anyone's beaten his record yet. No. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was fun. There's lots of clowning around when things get slow there with other cashiers and, and people would come through, uh, were interesting characters, but, um, you know, I would say that was, that was still not a, a super great job because you got to deal with, um, a lot of bullshit. Some people would come through with like, you know, a hundred coupons, literally, I mean these, and I can't even imagine what it's like now with extreme couponing, but you would just see silly things with, uh, with what people would try to do. and. I actually did like get they would, just, they would say they would say like this coupon is this and then this is for this and then that is for that and so like you'd have to work through 20 coupons on on one on one customer yeah and then multiple people a day doing the you know can i talk to the manager type of thing so um so what that is was, that what is that one or well, just, just being like i'm not getting taken care of like the customer's always right bs yeah, they brought the wrong coupon in, expired coupons, and they expect you know that it's still going to get honored. And sometimes, sometimes you know, it's honored. But I, th I think I've talked about this. I, I talk about this a lot just in my normal life, but like, or just in, in business, you know, I'm getting really, really sick and tired of this. The customer is always right mentality. Um, <laughs> yeah. As as a business owner, um, and I'm you know I'm sure you as a cashier, you know, as a as a teenager, it's like you have the expired coupon this is your fault. This is your issue. Maybe you saw it and you were like, I'm just going to throw a hissy fit until someone gives me my way. And that just needs to like flat out stop. Like that is unbelievable. You know, I was not too long for that job either. Uh, it, it was fine, but, uh, eventually I thought, you know, I was going to move on to something a little more relaxed, something a little bit more chill. So I went over to Oshman's sporting goods. I don't even think Oshman's is still around, but I guess, no, man, but I remember Oshman's Oshman's is great. Yeah, yeah. I guess now the closest thing would be Academy, but Oshman's was kind of weird because at least the one near uh, where I lived at the time in Houston. And what was weird about it was they had these they had these departments where they would have funky stuff in some of the departments. And let me give you an example. So I got put in the ski section, which is bizarre because at that time, I think I was sixteen. I had literally never been skiing, and I had filled out the application, got hired as a you know retail associate, and they stuck me in the ski section. First of all, I don't okay. know why you have a, a huge ski section in Houston, Texas, but nonetheless, like they had this, uh, what was interesting, they had this rolling carpet. They had a huge box basically in the ski Yes, section. I remember those. You remember this? Okay. Yes. It's so odd. It was essentially a fake ski hill and right. it was, all it was. So you was could like, demo the skis. Uh-huh. So you could demo the skis on, on the carpet. It was an incline rolling carpet, like a lubed up carpet more or less. And it was only like, you know, 20 or 30 feet long, but, uh, but people would demo skis up there. And, but when I joined, like, so I thought that was kind of cool. And they had, they had other stuff at Oshman's, like they had a, a batter's box over by the baseball stuff, you know, where you could, um, you know, hit, hit balls, uh, almost like in a VR type setup on a big screen. It was kind of a head. Oh, really? Stuff. Okay. But, uh, but anyway, so they had all this cool stuff to kind of make the store cooler as a sporting goods store. But are those, are those also the same things that with the, with the golfing simulators where yep. you could test out the golf club and see how far you hit it? And yep, exactly. Yep. Whatever. So, so why did that store falter if they had all of that great stuff where you could test out 
I, that's mean, a good I, I agree with question. you that that is kind of ahead of its time or maybe just people felt intimidated to actually there's like a barrier of entry of like yes i want to test out these golf clubs but i don't want to get into the machine and like waste someone's time or i don't want to have someone have to turn on the ski ski mountain yeah to, you know, well, jump half the on time, and then, yeah half the time we would um in in and all these different like things this the sales associates would just tell people they're broken <laughs> like um even the, though they weren't the, the, the classic that you know you, I'm, I'm sure you see it on on reddit or twitter all the time the uh the mcdonald's shake machine is broken because it yep. just takes too much time yeah yep exactly so yeah the fake ski hill the ski section i knew nothing about skis they stuck me there Oshman's, you know, your question is interesting because I, I don't really know what happened. I don't know if that got bought out by private equity and run into the ground. I don't know if they just got outcompeted by Academy and then I guess eventually Dick's Sporting Goods or I don't know, maybe they were uh, bought by someone and just turned into a different brand. I don't know you, what happened. You, you know, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but I, I, I love that you said bought by private equity and then run into the ground. It's like my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite thing that private equity companies do. They're very bad at retail, it seems. There's only one or two private equity firms that seem to know what they're doing in retail. But that's a story for another time. Yep. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I did that for a little bit. But honestly, it was, uh, it was another job where it seemed cool before I, um, before I actually got into the reality of it. And yeah. uh, it was pretty slow, especially in the ski section. No one ever came in there. So it, it just got so boring. I was watching the clock just tick by minute by minute. You uh, have a series of jobs where you just had to watch the clock. Oh dude, yeah. I mean, that was uh, that was one of the things that got me so motivated to um just want to be at the top of my class and get and get into a good school and get into a good major and get into like real jobs where I could actually use my mind and not have to and actually enjoy when, the work, you when, know. When you were, you know, sitting around waiting, did you ever get to like read or learn, you know, there's that you don't have, you didn't have smartphones back then. So you couldn't be scrolling and looking at the internet and fooling around, which I'm sure a lot of people do now, but were you just having to wait? Was it just Yeah, like pretty a, much. Yeah. You weren't, um, most of my jobs besides being a lifeguard, when you would get a break off the stand, you could read then. And I did do that. Yeah. But the other jobs, uh, you know, you're pretty much your manager is constantly hounding you to clean stuff up or do stuff, talk to customers, et cetera. So yeah, yeah. there was no, no time to really do anything cool but, but, but we i also would, we would I mess also, around with the other store associates you would like have some camaraderie camaraderie with your other sure. uh, hourly wage workers but yeah sure but i also i also like that you said something about enjoying the work which i'm sure we'll get into later so yeah. i'm just gonna mention that now yeah well i'm definitely not through the the period of of shitty jobs unfortunately and, okay but, well let's keep moving so <laughs> i mean i did so from there i think i think the next job i had was um as a retail associate at best buy which was like, oh, I'm upgrading from Oshman Sporting Goods to Best Buy. Because at the time, Best Buy was kind of cool. Like as a customer, you'd go in and they had lots of like, there was always like lots of cool computer stuff that was hot, new CDs coming out that were like, you know, hot releases. Yeah. And this was before like streaming and Spotify, obviously. Yeah. And you and, could just get lost in a Best Buy for a while. Oh, yeah. It was wild, man. That store used to be packed. And so I thought yeah. initially this was going to be a cool job. It ended up actually being one of my worst and most hated jobs. Um, okay. I think part of that was because I got placed in the CD, DVD and games section, mm -hmm. uh, which at first I thought would be kind of cool. Cause like, you know, I loved gaming. Uh, it was a, one of the bigger sections of the store, one of the busier sections, but what I didn't know until I got in there was that literally every night you had to reorder thousands. I'm talking thousands and thousands of misplaced CDs and DVDs every night. You'd have to go back and alphabetically reorder them. 
and this this took like two hours after your shift was over. You had to do this. The other thing that- Is this just people that were, that were picking it up and moving it? Yeah. I mean, it was amazing how many things got displaced during the course of like one shift. I mean, incredible. You would, it would, it's mind blowing. Um, okay. Some of that I think was because people were actually like trying to steal stuff. The, the reason that they have loss prevention, like the guys in the yellow shirt at the front of Best Buy is because uh, they had a significant, significant problem with people stealing stuff. And I got to see it firsthand. I mean, it is bizarre how many people would go to the weirdest lengths to steal stuff. I'm talking about like we would see people stuffing Xboxes into washers and dryers that they would buy. Um, you know, people like stuffing stuff down their pants, obviously, but weird, weird ways. People would just sprint out of the store sometimes with stuff. Um, it, dude, it was it was bizarre. So we had people constantly stealing CDs and DVDs. That was probably the section where we had the most theft. And the, the throwing the throwing the Xbox in the washer machine, like that's that's just kind of funny. Oh, it's, it's like wild. oh, this it, it had a sign. It said like buy this washer and get an Xbox free. And I just assumed <laughs> it was in here when I had it. Like, some of this stuff people come up with is amazing. Oh, dude, it was. I mean, yeah, I can't even remember all the crazy things that people did like that. But it was it was wild, honestly. Um, yeah. But I think the thing that was the worst about Best Buy was that it was such high pressure sales tactics from like the mid level managers above the store mm. associates, like. First yeah. of all, every day you had this like rah-rah cheerleader meeting of like, all right, guys, we're going to go out there and we're going to have a great day. And we're going to sell so much stuff. And I want you today to push this product. It's a, it's a, a DVD holder. You know, obviously like in retrospect, they were pushing stuff that uh, they had really high margins on. And Sure. Um, but they would make you, essentially your uh, continued employment was dependent on you following these high pressure sales tactics. And they would tell me, for instance, all right, Travis, today, every customer that comes into the CD and DVD section, I want you to offer them uh, the CD case. And I'm like, okay, well, some people know what they want and they don't want to be hit up by me first words saying, hey, are you interested in buying this CD case, right? So it was just annoying that uh, they were putting these like high pressure tactics on us to, because yeah. I, I was smart enough to know when someone walked in and looking for a certain thing with a certain you know, expression on their face. They didn't want to be like upsold to some C CD holder, right? Like, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that was annoying. Be be Best Buy, Best Buy was, you know, whenever you walk in, the first thing that happens at Best Buy is you have that guy that's like, "Hey, can I help you?" And yeah. and I always, I always kind of think of, you know, going shopping as there's you either want to be left alone so you can do research and just look around, or you want help, and when you want help, you want it now. So yeah. like. It's the, it's the, you got to give the customer their space for a while, but just kind of keep an eye on them. And then once they start kind of shifting around a little bit or their eyes are moving around, that's when you kind of go and hit them and like, Hey, what can I help you with? Yeah. yeah I've, I've never understood that. Like I hate, I always hate I loved Best Buy, but I always hated walking into Best Buy because people would just bombard me all the time. It's like, <laughs> I'm smart enough to know that like, there's content research. Yeah. yeah. Right. So Oh man, yeah, you get it, you get it. But yep. apparently they didn't. Um, but yeah, so that was that was that job, and uh, I think I um, I just stopped showing up for shifts at one point. Like after the holidays, I was so burnt out. Like the holidays were a total shit show with very late hours. You would get out of there at like one or two a.m. You know, having started at like four p.m. or something, and I was just I was burnt out. So I think I stopped showing up at one point, which was not the right way to handle it. But that's a lesson learned. Yeah, and. Um, 
yeah, so I think I got fired from there. But um, but I moved on to Blockbuster Video, which is <laughs> yet Dude, another. Dude, you're just hitting all the good retail sh- shops. I mean, I don't know what was up, but I will say, so there were a couple, uh, there were a couple side jobs that I had that I actually really liked, but they were only seasonal. We can talk about those later, I guess, if you want, but like I did yeah. blackjack dealing for company parties during the holidays and okay. uh, I was an umpire for little league baseball, uh, here and there. So those were cool, but those were only like, you know, a few hours here and there sure, sure, to, sure. to keep ca- gas in the car consistently. Right. So, so what's it like working at Blockbuster? Like I actually am very interested in this. So yeah, this was in the heyday. This was, you know, before streaming and like Blockbuster was the place to be on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, we, my girlfriend and I were just talking about that. Uh, we went to I Love Video over on airport the other day yeah. and walked in and it like was nostalgia yes. times a thousand. It was like, yeah. oh my God, I remember this. I remember what it was like to like be surrounded by hundreds of titles and just being able to kind of scan a shelf and see all of this stuff and kind of just like touch things and move around and find something unique yeah. instead of just what we're used to now with just like click, 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 click. And whatever the algorithm says we should watch, we should watch versus the whole discovery aspect of it. But also the, the popularity of it was a center for social stuff. Like, you know, if you were in high school, you would go to Blockbuster and that's where you would see people and talk to people and hang out. Yep. yep. Sleepover, sleepover parties were, uh, you know, uh, colliding into other sleepover parties. Like, it, right. yeah, it was cool, man. I mean, it was another clock watching job for me, but there were some things that made it more fun like that. And mm-hmm. one of the cool things was basically I had free rentals on any games or movies that, you know, almost unlimited. And nice. I got smart and got a DVD burner. So I would take home a bunch of movies. <laughs> and once I liked, I would actually burn to my hard drive. Um, so by like, by the time I got to college, I think I had like two or 300 movies on a hard drive that were uh, pretty great. But um, nice. yeah, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't. Well, I guess that was long. I guess the, the statue the, of limitations is probably yeah, long, long past. <laughs> but uh it could get boring at times and the pay wasn't great but i actually liked blockbuster a lot more than the other retail jobs i had uh like you said it was it was kind of a cool, a cool place at times yeah um, and you could talk like culture and movies and stuff with people which was cool so that was fun we're, okay so was there ever like like what was the it was people just going and looking for the newest movie right like it was mainly because like if i remember those shelves correctly yeah. it was like the matrix came out right and it was like yeah it was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them and like did people ever come in not knowing what they wanted to see and like just kind of talk movies or i would say it was probably an 80 20 Pareto situation it was probably like 80 percent of all the rentals were like the new releases and then there was like a 20 percent tail where some people would come in for something obscure um and so they had a pretty big selection and you could find a lot of different stuff there but yeah on the on the walls, the outer walls of the store or inside the store uh, were covered in all the new releases and people would just walk from like A to Z through the new releases. Yeah. And yeah, certain new releases would have like an entire huge floor to ceiling shelf. Like when the Matrix came out, like you said, it had a entire, you know, there were probably a hundred copies of it on our on our wall. Um, yeah. But they were smart about how they merchandised that. So I, I actually remember the, the Matrix specifically. I remember the the marketing trailer on that worked on me so well where it was like you know morpheus is like the red pill or the blue pill and i was like what does this mean oh, and so dude. i couldn't like on the first day that it was released i went to the movie theater and it was sold out 
So I bought a ticket. I don't even remember what movie it was, but I bought a ticket to another movie and I sat on the, in the aisle on the stairs and watched the movie. (laughs) (laughs) So they didn't, they didn't get my box office revenue. Some other movie did, but I, I was so into what this thing was. It was totally worth it. 100% worth it. Yeah. That first one was like sort of uh, mind blowing and like, just like, took you took your mind and your thinking to like a different place like then it had yeah. ever gone like it was so yeah. cool plus the effects and everything was cool too but yeah what a um the good old bullet time yeah what a phenomenon man um so yeah that was that was blockbuster um so now you probably worked at either like starbucks or barnes and noble <laughs> thankfully not um i actually i think from there i think i was about a junior or senior in high school by that time and i was finally old enough i think when i turned 18 i was old enough to become a waiter which the whole thinking there was like okay waiters you can actually earn well above minimum wage if you're good at what you do so i was finally yeah. able to like leave there um and yeah so then i went over and like applied to and, and got a job as a waiter at Papacitos, which is like uh sort of like an up, upscale Tex-Mex, Tex-Mex restaurant chain in mm-hmm. mostly in Texas. I think actually most of their locations are in Houston, but they have one in Austin and I'm not sure about Dallas. I know they have one or two in San Antonio as well. Run by this Papa's family. They own a bunch of restaurants uh, around Texas. Oh yeah, the Papa Do's and yep. Yeah. Yeah, but they run a they run a really good ship. This was actually um, an interesting place because there was a lot of training on the front end and I could tell that you know, Papa's management all the way down to like the management of each restaurant was like, they had it together. Um, they yeah. operated like a well-oiled machine and, um, I, and yeah, it turned out like once I got past the training and stuff and, and got through the first shaky weeks of being a waiter, like I started to earn really good money. I could make, you know, over a hundred bucks a night, um, on a weekend night. And, uh, for me at the time, like that was, you know, that was a lot of money. Um, because I think, mm-hmm all the retail jobs I was making seven or eight bucks an hour at most. And you work an eight hour shift and you know, you still only made like 50 bucks after taxes. Yeah. You wait, you wait tables, you make more than a hundred bucks. A lot of your cash tips, you, you know, you wouldn't claim for taxes. And so you were, you were coming out a lot better there. <laughs> <laughs> the FBI is coming after you. If, if anybody ever listens to this episode. statute of limitations, man, <laughs> I like how you got really <laughs> confident on that after I mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is interesting though, and now I think it's probably changing a little bit with all of the like credit card and um, you know electronic payments. But back then, cash was, was almost every tip that I got was in cash, and yeah. you you know you could get away with only claiming part of those cash tips, and everyone did it. Like every waiter, every bartender, like you know management would help you. Like all right, Travis, we know you made more than this. You have to claim this amount today, but pretty much uh, everyone was claiming, you know, maybe 50% of what they actually made in cash tips. That's interesting. But uh, Okay, so so you were a waiter and then where, what would you do after that? Yeah, I mean, that was a really fast paced job. Uh, I did that actually for probably a year and I even did that for a little bit um, on breaks when I came back from college the very first year I uh, came back from college. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I still love that restaurant, by the way. A little plug for them, best fajitas in town. <laughs> Um, but yeah, after that, I finally, so after that I went to college and you know, that that's when I started, I mean, my whole, the whole theme of everything I've, I've done work-wise from the time I was 15 was to basically try to stair step up into a better and better job. Mm-hmm. So once I got to college, the idea was that, um, I was going to get real internships in real office jobs related to my major, you know, I decided to major in finance, like 
pretty much right off the bat uh, as a freshman. And what, what made you decide that? Well, I wanted to do I wanted to do a combination of computer engineering and finance, but it was just at UT it was pretty difficult to do both. So instead, mm-hmm. I the thing that really drove me into business was um, we were right when I entered uh, college, the dot com bust happened, and it was just sort of like yep. this weird timing. And so I was hearing that you know computer programmers were increasingly out of work. It's funny because now, obviously, like that's changed so much. It's such a hot in demand job where people can get paid a lot of money. But back then. During yeah, the dot com bust, it was it was not a great field to be like heading into. Yeah, you and I, you and I were in the same boat because I kind of had the same. You know, I took computer science one and two in high school, and you know, I was contemplating not going to college. Yeah, and you know, going and working for a tech company, and um, my mom, you know, luckily convinced me. She was like, "Hey, you know, this is a really fun experience. Like, at least give it one year, and then you can quit." Um, but yeah, like I, I remember that in like 2000, 2001 ish yep. and it was like, it was the worst idea ever. And I was like, Whoa, thank yep. God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also like I, uh, I was going to hedge my bets and do both. I mean, dude, I took it even a step further than you. I was such a nerd. I was doing computer national computer science competitions in high school. Like I love wow. programming and I still do. So you were doing a lot of programming in high school and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I had an amazing computer science program. I did independent study. I did like three, four years of computer science. I was, I was in, dude, I literally was. Wow. I didn't, I didn't know that about you. I had I'd yeah, like what, Mark Zuckerberg. How do you compete nationally for? There's, for um, there's these competitions, like the big one I think uh, I did was the American Computer Science League. They do a big, it's actually an international competition. We would compete against like Ukrainians and Europeans as well. But um, yeah, and those were, those were mostly dominated by like private tech high schools, like Thomas Jefferson and stuff. But we had this. What were you saying about Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, I believe he was at one or two of the competitions I went to back in the day. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't know him. I didn't know him then, but. Yeah. He, how, why would you? No. Yeah. He's but, not a, you know. Yeah. But he went to, I believe he either went to Exeter or Thomas Jefferson, I believe. And uh, they went, they went to all the competitions we did. We were just a public high school, Psych Creek high school, but we had this phenomenal set of, there were two teachers there that were just brilliant at computer science and teaching computer science and got us really into uh, programming competitions. The few of us that were decided to do it. What were you coding in back then? C++ mostly. See, my school was teaching us Pascal and we begged, we begged for C++. And it was just the guy had been there for for so long and he didn't want to teach anything else and he huh. maybe didn't know it. And yeah. so, you know, we were learning this outdated language. It was like, yeah, you learn if then, you know, statements and, and you learn the basics, which, you know, are always the basics. And it's like yeah. learning Latin and then knowing all the different dialects. And, but you probably didn't have mm-hmm. many like libraries you could use and stuff like that, right? No, 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 yeah. no, no. Yeah, so we, we were pretty limited in that even though, you know, at Westlake, Westlake, you know, is a great school. Quote, yeah quote. but yeah um yeah so we didn't have anything like that so that's interesting yeah but yeah so uh, yeah and i got i got accepted in the business honors program which was a pretty like competitive program to get into at ut so yeah that and then combined with the fact that it was hard to also do computer engineering to be in a, a, a different engineering school as well i just decided to do a minor in mis to kind of get my tech fix and then um and then i you know majored in finance and the bhp uh, but pretty much like right off the bat, like the first couple of weeks of of being at Macombs at UT, hearing some UT alums speak uh, and things like that, um, I was like, finance sounds like the place to be. There were people making just buku bucks of money. Like uh, we had, I remember one of the first presentations I saw was uh, this woman, Robin Bosch, 
Robin was like this force of nature, just full of energy. She was probably a couple years out of college. She was working as an equity trader at Goldman. And, you know, she was probably making half a million bucks a year at the time. And I could just see like how dynamic she was and how interesting her job sounded. And it's funny because literally when she first said Goldman Sachs, I thought this is how naive I was. I thought she was talking about Saks Fifth Avenue, the retail store, like for the first few <laughs> yeah. like no, not that many people knew about Goldman back then, unless you sure. were in finance. Right. Um, but certainly as a kid from like a low middle class background, I didn't even know who Goldman Sachs was, but immediately I was like, holy crap, I gotta go. I gotta go work there. I gotta go work in finance. And, um, part of that was just money, but part of it was just the excitement of, of markets and, and this, this woman, Robin. Uh, and then another guy, Sean Abood, who I'm, I'm actually good friends with now too. He was another guy from Goldman that was, uh, speaking at UT as a UT alum. And I just thought he was a really cool guy. Um, but, but yeah, so that, that sort of got me on that track. And so the first internship I had through just pure luck through a connection of uh, my godmother in Houston, she was able to land me. She worked at this little small investment bank in downtown Houston called Sanders Morris Harris. And she got me basically like a clerical job, like just like helping people wherever possible, shuffling papers around, um, you know, literally maybe not quite getting coffee level, but like, you know, literally filing paper away and stuff like that. And, um, it, it was a, an investment bank that had like a bunch of high net worth clients and served like smaller companies and, and a lot of oil and gas stuff in Houston and kind of an old school firm run by a couple of the like old, old school investment banking partner guys. And, um, that was the first time I really got my foot in the door in anywhere related to finance. And so I was doing that job while also waiting tables at Papacitos. That was one of the times that I probably worked the hardest in my life. I'd work you know, eight or 10 hours at the investment bank and then drive straight to Papacito's, change in my car, uh, work, you know, a six or eight hour shift there and uh, just go to sleep. And it was just like work, rinse, repeat. Uh, it was it was a brutal summer, but it was necessary. And um, and so that was my first summer, uh, freshman year of college, after freshman year of college. And, um, and that was a pretty that was a, a pretty interesting time, but actually there was one thing I left out. I want to, I want to tell you, cause this is kind of a funny story. It was before that summer. It was the winter break before that. I, uh, I had come home. I had done a stupid thing and joined a fraternity at UT, um, okay. but couldn't really, couldn't really afford the dues. And so I needed a way to make a lot of money in basically like a three week time frame during my first winter break in college to pay for the, the fraternity dues. And okay. I saw these signs back home advertising um, that you could be a, a fireworks stand operator during the holidays and make like two or three grand uh, in basically like 10 to 14 days, I think. So I thought that was like really, really good compensation at the time and decided to do it somehow. I don't know how, but these people needed people, I guess, and let uh, an 18 year old become a fireworks stand operator. Uh, the problem was that this was like a 24 seven job. Like I literally slept in this wooden fireworks stand across from a gas station every night. It was like super cold and lonely. I had like a space heater, a baseball bat and an empty shotgun with me. <laughs> like protecting my inventory. Um, I mean, there was actually one night when this, this kid, I didn't know he was a kid when I was inside the stand, but someone who rolled up at like 4am and was like fiddling with the lock on the outside of the stand while I was inside. And uh, my little brother was actually sleep, uh, sleeping next to me too. He loved to help out. He was like a 12-year-old kid at the time, or I think a 10-year-old kid at the time. And he was like, uh, sort of like, 
just wanted to be with his big bro. And he was, he was sleeping there too. We were both freaking out. So I'm like using my deepest voice. I'm like, Hey, who's out there? Go away. And, uh, we called our stepdad and he drove up and he, he saw that it was just like a 15 year old kid, like rolling, uh, rolling away on his bike. So, uh, but at the time I was like worried that I was going to have to like use the baseball bat. Uh, but it, yeah, now, was, now, now you've got like cameras and stuff and you could probably actually run a pretty. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot, but of that, that's ways. pretty cool. Did, so did someone else own it or did you like, was there a franchise thing or how did yeah, they, they there's a company that essentially owns all the stands and then they um they more or less sell the inventory to the operator. Of course they like they they don't really sell it. They they finance it for you, but um but you're expected to sell a minimum amount and then you essentially get a commission on top of whatever you sell okay. above a certain And what'd level. you make? I only ended up making like 1500 bucks out of the whole thing. Like I paid yeah. a couple friends to help me out. Like New Year's Eve was bonkers. Like there were so many people I needed like a bunch of workers to help me. And some, some of them were my family, but some of them were my friends. I think some people also stole some stuff while I wasn't paying attention. So like I didn't have, my inventory didn't match up to my sales quite right at the end and things like that. So overall, I didn't make that much money, especially on like an hourly basis. I probably made like less than minimum wage, but uh, I think I made like just enough to pay my fraternity dues for the next semester. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did that once. I didn't do that again. That's enterprising. I like it. Yeah. I mean, I was just, I was a hustler, man. From 15 to whatever age, I just was hustling for any, any money I could make. But Um, it just makes, it's, it's those, it's those early kind of things that help you understand one, what, what actual real work is. Absolutely. um, That you might not want it. You know, you're capable of doing it for a while, you know, for short term, like you said, you know, for two weeks, you were sleeping in the, in the fireworks stand, you know, but you're not going to do that indefinitely, nor should anybody. Yeah. But it, it helps you kind of realize, you know, you get, you pay your dues early and you say, you know, this is what, what gr- the, the grit is of working hard. Yep. And that is going to help me learn that when I get into a, a job that pays me well, that I want to do this and not that. Absolutely. Yeah, man, you you nailed it with the grit thing. It just really built up like a certain amount of work ethic and uh, and grit, and gave me, you know, a really good foundation. I didn't know it at the time, but you know, now looking back, it's it's really like helped, kind of build my character in certain ways. There, there's a there's a quote there's a quote that has been coming up recently. I, I think it was when the Democratic Socialists had those uh, that video that's been going around with the personal point of privilege thing. Um, um, I don't know if you saw that, but it was a video where um, it's a personal point of privilege. And this guy was like, I, I find it hard to, um, to concentrate. So at this conference, I need everyone to stop whispering. <laughs> um, and, and anyways, it was just kind of like, you know, it was just a weird situation. And, um, and someone tweeted out, um, hard men make great times or hard men create great times, great times create weak men and this in the cycle goes on or something like that yeah but it's just kind of a you know you work hard and, and you work hard knowing that you don't want to you know you don't want to do this forever because you'll get burnout. out right. yep so you have to kind of do these short spurts of working hard and whether that's manual labor knowledge work whatever it is you know w- with your business and pre- previous jobs in my business and my previous jobs, you know, there are nights that, you know, you just work, you know, really, really, really hard. So you can kind of then 
set a precedent of what you want the rest of your days to look yeah. like, but you can't do that indefinitely. And Naval Ravikant also talks about, you know, not, um, not trading time one for one for money, right? Like he talks about being able to leverage your, your knowledge so that you can, you know, build wealth rather than, um, if you're constantly trading an hour of your time for X dollars, um, you know, if you want to make more money, then you got to put in more time, but at a certain level, certain jobs allow you to trade, uh, just expertise or allow you to build wealth without having to, you know, increasingly, uh, commit more and more time. And so I think that's yeah. a pretty powerful concept too. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Time for a sponsored message. Get your LLC from betterlegal.com. The state filing, EIN filing, and operating agreement for one price as fast as your state will allow. Also offering registered agent service and ongoing state compliance. Let Better Legal handle formalities so you can handle the actual business. And, and the interesting thing that I'm going to touch on, because I know you're going to get into this later, is, is that what I like about talking to you is that you, you're, um, you're kind of like me in the fact that you're a tool builder. You'll mm -hmm. do something manually. And you'll figure out like, okay, what is, what is this process? What is this thing that I'm doing? And you'll dissect it from a bunch of different, uh, bunch of different kind of perspectives. And then you will make the process more efficient or automate it somehow, or yeah, you and break I it up into different technology. pieces. Yeah. We yeah. leverage technology. We don't want to be doing tasks manually forever. We want to leverage. Yeah. It's the same idea I was just talking about. Yeah. Leveraging technology. Yeah. But, but, but I also don't want people to scare people into thinking, you know, you know, you're a guy that was doing national programming competitions, but, you know, utilizing technology doesn't necessarily mean that you have to code something. It just means that you're creating a better process and, you know, pen and paper is technology. Yeah. Fire is technology. So, you know, I don't want to kind of just say like, you have to know programming to create a great process, but it's understanding the root of you know, what it is that you're doing and then kind of breaking it up and whether that's just creating a better manual process or breaking it up into different people do different things. And so yeah. it's not one person doing, you know, so, so that's kind of yeah. what I was trying to, trying to get. No, at, that's totally yeah. right. And as you know, there are lots of no code tools and things like Zapier and stuff where people can plug in stuff. And, and like you said, yeah. yeah, just leveraging, understanding how to leverage um, other people and building teams that that's even yeah. a point of, of that. So, yeah, I agree. 100%. Um, okay. So you were, uh, at the boutique um, investment yep. firm, and we're also waiting tables. Yep. And so after that summer was over, um, finally got to go back to the fun, fun stuff in college. Went back sophomore year, um, and then so started to think about okay, now how can I level up to an even better job after that? Like I want to go from I want to work somewhere where I can learn more finance, but I don't want to be filing papers. So. Um, I started interviewing through like UT's career school with some uh, different companies that were trying to hire interns for the following summer. And I got really lucky because I got an interview with a hedge fund of funds uh, here in Austin called Meritage Capital. And Meritage Capital was interesting because it's run by two former Dell executives from the 90s, Tom Meredith and Alex Smith, both. Oh, wow. Brilliant guys. Very smart. Tom Meredith is a genius. Yep. Yep. Tom is dynamic and smart and well-connected and just honestly, just a great guy too. Both of them are, both Alex and Tom. Um, and I was very fortunate uh, because not only did I get to interface with them, but um, there's a portfolio, two portfolio managers and um, one of them, Sharon Redahays, who, um, who I believe is still here in Austin. And um, 
her and I got close. But then I also had a, um, a finance mentor who was an MBA at the time named Ian McAbeer. And Ian, I'll talk about uh, a little bit later too, because he was critical in helping me eventually get another position that I got. But um, it was just my first real exposure to like a really great professional environment with great leaders, great money managers. Um, it was a, a place of lots of learning. And uh, essentially like this hedge fund of funds, they were at the time, hedge fund of funds were just becoming a thing. Tom and Alex saw the trend early. They, uh, they started allocating some of their money to different hedge funds. So they would go meet with like top hedge fund managers, try to understand their strategies, understand who was going to outperform, uh, who was going to be able to grow their wealth. And then they would go invest in these funds. So we did a lot of work into the hedge fund world. Uh, a lot of it was focused around portfolio management and, uh, risk and returns. And, um, and so there was actually a lot of math involved too. Like I did some different modeling with uh, different portfolio risk and return characteristics. Anyway, lots, lots of stuff. Uh, Ian taught me a lot because he was really quantitative. He's a CFA. He now manages money for um, uh, through a different company, but um, he, he was just fantastic. And so I got to intern and just learn a lot. And I actually got to like write reports for them and actually do real work for the first time. This was probably the first job where I felt like I used my brain to contribute and actually potentially even had a contribution to, to the business that moved it forward. Uh, so this, this was my sophomore year, uh, summer internship. And it was probably the thing that really, I, for the first time I felt like I was headed in the right direction and heading towards a real career. And, uh, and so, yeah, I just, I, I love that experience. All right. And so did you do that the rest of your college career? No. So I, I mean, I did stay on, um, after the summer I would work like, I think 10 hours a week or so, uh, at their, at their office for them still. But the thing that I had been driving towards, if you remember, uh, what I was saying about Goldman Sachs and Robin Bosch, I wanted a summer internship at Goldman Sachs. Like your key, your key internship as a finance uh, major is your junior year internship because a lot of a lot of people get uh, their first full-time job offer early in their senior year. And it's from the place that they intern at when they're uh, the summer between their junior and senior year. So that was the, the marquee summer internship that I had been building towards. And I wanted to go work at Goldman Sachs and so did everyone else at UT. Uh, but I was particularly focused on it. I had read, you know, the history of Goldman Sachs. There was like a couple books you could read. I had met um, Robin and Sean for coffee. I basically asked them, what can I do? What can I do? How do I position myself to be, um, you know, a Goldman intern? And so I wanted that internship more than anything. And I had to go through a bunch of tough rounds of interviews at UT, got a call one day, a couple weeks after got the internship, literally was like yelling in the business school hallway. <laughs> it was honestly one of the, the brightest points in, in my life up to that point. Um, and it turned out to be an incredible experience. I mean, Goldman runs an amazing structured internship program and in, in the, they do it in different divisions. I actually specifically focused on the sales and trading division because I wanted to, I wanted to be an investor or a trader. And so I, I was able to get into the sales and trading group and I had about a hundred, hundred other interns in my class from all over the country. I mean, a lot of Ivy league kids, um, kids who probably didn't honestly work nearly as hard to get that internship, but there were yeah. also some really smart down to earth people in my internship class as well. Um, Goldman actually was very good at um, sourcing interns too, from a lot of underrepresented uh, schools and historically uh, black colleges and things like that. And so 
we had a really good mix of people in the in the internship class. I got to rotate on three different trading desks during my time there. And this was in New York. I got to that was the other cool thing about it was I got to go spend a summer living in New York City, working at Goldman every day. Uh, the summer absolutely flew by. Like it literally, I think back on it, it felt like I blinked my eyes and it was over. But I was so engrossed every day in what was happening. I was literally drinking from the fire hose. I mean, Goldman, <laughs> Goldman back then at least, and probably still is, was just an incredible place with incredibly smart people um, and just a dynamic place, obviously, because they're focused on markets. But yeah, I rotated on three different trading desks, equity derivatives trading, uh, currency derivatives trading, and algorithmic trading. And um, Yeah, that means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> most of these desks, what they were responsible for was they uh, facilitated trades for their clients. So they weren't taking Goldman's capital and investing it directly, but instead they would have hedge fund clients or other investing clients that would call them up and say, hey, Goldman, you know, I want to make a trade in X stock or I want to actually you know, buy 100,000 puts, right? Or I want to buy $20 million worth of call options on this. And you can't just go out in the market and do that. You gotta, if you're a big firm like that, you got to go call someone like Goldman to make a deal and make that trade. So Goldman would say, sure, we'll sell, that. We'll sell those calls to you. And then they would go out and hedge them and do like dynamic hedging on their trading desk. And so they were not taking directional risk most of the time, but they were facilitating client trades and then hedging. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's some of the stuff was very, very complicated. Uh, learning like second order derivatives on options trading and stuff like that was, was really uh, a challenge. But um, I also got to sit in on presentations by a lot of different Goldman partners in on different desks that I didn't work on. Like I remember there was a 29-year-old Ashok Varadhan who was running their interest rates desk and he was one of the youngest partners in Goldman history. The previous year, he, they had written in the Wall Street Journal that he'd made $25 million. Um, and he was a dynamic, smart guy and he was speaking to a class of 100 interns. And so anyway, I got to sit in on these presentations. They also had like lots of social events, like multiple social events set up every week that were free for the interns to go mingle with other interns and other Goldman employees. and. Um, it's, it's kind of magical. Um, and I was, I was spending 12 hours a day at the office, uh, then going to these events again, it was like work, sleep, work, sleep, but I just absolutely loved it because I couldn't spend enough time at Goldman just learning from the, the other traders that were there. Um, okay. So you had a great, you had a great experience at, at Goldman for the summer. And then what did you do? You know, you said you, you know, you usually get offers the first semester of your senior year, what happened there and, and what did you do once you graduated? Yeah, good question. So I ultimately decided that I either wanted to do an internal Goldman hedge fund. So they did have a couple groups internal at Goldman, um, their SSG special situations group and GSPS Goldman Sachs proprietary strategies, which would actually take Goldman capital and invest it in assets like a hedge fund and they would buy funky stuff. They were buying like aircraft leases and Japanese golf courses and you know, all kinds of crazy stuff uh, okay. in addition to like stocks that they thought were undervalued and things like that. But these so were it was just anything. So it was just like anything that might just increase in value. It's like anything's up for grabs. Yep. And they were very, very good at what they did. These guys were making, again, the top partners within those groups were making probably tens of millions of dollars a year. Uh, it was essentially Goldman's internal hedge fund. And I decided I either wanted to do that or go work for a hedge fund because I didn't, I didn't really like the broker stuff. Like even though I'd rotated on the trading desks, like I said, those guys were mostly just guys and gals. They were mostly just facilitating trades for clients. 
And I wanted to be the client. I wanted to be the people doing the work to find interesting investments, making and those calling those people. Yeah. So like, exactly. So, um, so I was like, okay, so I unfortunately didn't get an opportunity to, um, interview with the prop trading groups. They really didn't typically take college, uh, interns as full-time hires at that time. Um, I don't know if that's changed, but I think typically they would actually take people with a couple years experience at Goldman and then bring them into the proprietary trading groups, uh, with maybe like one or two exceptions. So I wasn't able to get that job at Goldman at that time. And so, um, because of my previous work at Meritage, I knew like hedge funds were super exciting. That was kind of the place to be, uh, the buy side. And so I decided I was going to uh, not go back to Goldman full time. And I was going to go, uh, try to get hired at a hedge fund. And I was going to go knock on doors if I had to, to try to get interviews. But luckily, uh, there was a, a hedge fund or two that came through the career center at UT, uh, my, my senior year, one of them was this fund. It was a $500 million long short equity hedge fund called stadium capital management. And that ended up being where I got hired for my first full-time job after college, uh, as an analyst at, at the hedge fund. And so, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, I interviewed with two of the partners at UT, they invited me to drinks afterward and after the official interview, and then they extended uh, an interview offer to go interview in their main office in Bend, Oregon, which was kind of a random place. Most hedge funds at the time were in New York, but these guys had a, um, two of the partners uh, had grown up doing a lot of outdoor stuff. One of them had grown up in Oregon. He wanted to put their office in a place where they could do cool stuff instead of just being in New York like everyone else. So they had their office in Bend, Oregon. I flew out there. First time I'd ever been in Oregon. Bend seemed amazing. It's like right in the mountains. There's a river that runs through the middle of the town. They've got these breweries, like tons of cool mountain biking, just really cool town. I think about 60, 70,000 people. Uh, but anyway, I pressed the guys, I guess, enough to get an offer, immediately accepted on the spot. I ended up partying with the guys that night and missed my flight the next morning. Um, but uh, worth it. And uh, yeah, so then I spent, um, after I went there after college, I spent about a year and a half of there. Uh, that year and a half was actually pretty hard. Like the first six months, especially, I just really didn't know as much as I thought I did going in. Um, I had to learn what like deep fundamental research in companies and stocks meant. I had to learn how hard investing in stocks really is. Um, it's, it's amazing how in, in so many aspects of, of your life and when you are through your career where you go in like the more, the more you don't know, the more naive you are, the more you think, you know, yep. you're like, Oh, this is, this is very face value stuff. This is blah, blah, blah. And then yep. once you start getting right below the surface, you're like, Oh my God. Yep. And, yep. and then you just realize how stupid you are, just how little you actually know. And then it just is like overwhelming. Yep. And one or two of the partners was hard on me at first. Um, and looking back, you know, I think that was probably a good thing. Luckily, there was another partner there who uh, helped take that edge off. Uh, and he was he was a brilliant guy, Dom, Dominic DeMarco. Uh, but he was probably my, one of my favorites there. But, I, you know, um, it was it was needed because I didn't really um, I didn't really have a skill set that I needed yet. And so that that helped those guys really train me up. And then I got to as I started to actually know my stuff and be able to put together competent, deep financial models and things like that. Um, I got to actually start traveling to meet with companies and meet with management teams uh, initially at first with with the partners. But then eventually on my own, I got to like go see the inside of factories. I got to 
I even spent a week on the road one time just uh, eating at different cheesecake factories every day, multiple times a day. Um, we were looking at an investment in Cheesecake Factory at the time. And I literally, I think- and So what, what is that? Just seeing like, is every Cheesecake Factory a good one because the ship is run so well or? That's what we wanted to find out. <clears throat> we wanted to find out what the, <clears throat> excuse me, what the, not only how they, how they were managed on the ground, like is each one managed well? Um, are they clean? Like, does traffic look like it's heavy at, at every one or do they have some that are like really good and others that seem to be deteriorating? Uh, it was also to talk to the managers and figure out how business was trending. Um, were there any growth opportunities on the ground that we weren't seeing and, you know, just by reading the annual reports and things like that. Um, and I did this with other companies too, like I, uh, big five sporting goods. Um, there was a payday loan company in Canada we were interested in potentially investing in. So I went and visited a bunch of sketchy payday loan offices and all over Canada, like, uh, different provinces. And I mean, um, you were like a real, real world Veronica Mars. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess so. Um, but that was, you know, that was cool. It would be exhausting at times, but it was cool because you actually were, trying to figure out fundamentally on the ground what was happening, talking to suppliers and customers and management teams. And you the could, stuff, the stuff that the numbers and the reports don't tell you. Exactly. It's all the context behind the numbers and reports, but more importantly, it gives you context for what the future is going to look like. You can, you can see potential problems when you're actually going to places like that. When you're talking to the management team, you can see how they handle adversity and how they think about tough questions how they're planning for the future. Those are the kinds of things that are probably more valuable than just sitting behind a computer looking at what numbers were last quarter. Yeah. So, okay. So after, after that, you know, you were out there for a year. Where did you go for that? Did you come back to Austin? Yeah, I was there for a year and a half. I knew that I would need to find another, another gig after about two years there because they had four partners. There weren't going to be any more partners coming up anytime soon. They would typically send their analysts off to business school after two years. So I started interviewing with, uh, with other hedge funds. I used a recruiter and started interviewing with other hedge funds about a year, year and a half into my time at Stadium, which is weird because you're interviewing for, with other companies before you've left your current company, but that's, that's what happens. And um, yeah, and so I, I uh, interviewed a few different funds. Interestingly enough, I was pretty deep into interviews with the prop trading group at Goldman Sachs. So remember how I said I wasn't able to interview for that job uh, before I left college, but I was able to get the interview now having some experience. And so I interviewed with Goldman Sachs proprietary trading group and was pretty deep into the interviews. But at the same time, I'd also started interviewing with a fund back here in Austin called Teton Capital Partners. And one of my old mentors, Ian from Meritage Capital had connected me to this small little hedge fund here in Austin. And the, the head of that hedge fund, Quincy Lee, uh, was starting to earn a reputation as being a really, really good investor with a really great track record. He was still managing relatively small amounts of money for a hedge fund at the time, about 150 million. And so I decided to go meet with Quincy. Ian had connected me. He was look, Quincy was looking for a new analyst, and um, we hit it off. And I hit it off with one or two of his other analysts, and just thought there was massive opportunity for them to grow that fund from a small fund to a very, very large, you know, premier fund. And the other thing I thought was there might be more upside for me, um, given that I could probably get a cut of some of their performance fees, almost, almost like because, a because it was a smaller, because it was a smaller firm and you were like, well, yep. 
it's a, it's got a solid foundation and I can help them grow. And in that process, yep. I can also get a piece of the pie. Yep, exactly. I can be a key guy there. Um, the trade-off was like, you know, if you go to Goldman Sachs prior to a trading group, you're going to be pretty much set for any other job you want after that, because that gives you the cachet and the, the experience to, you know, to be a baller. But the right. trade-off with Teton was like, well, but uh, you can go to this, you can take a bigger risk on a smaller, more unknown place um, and potentially have great financial upside, great um, professional upside as well. And honestly, I just kind of wanted to come back to Austin too. I had missed Austin a lot. So I chose the Teton Capital Partners over Goldman. And, uh, and so came back to Austin, started working at Teton and then ended up spending six or seven years there and had just a fantastic run there with the fund. Um, I joined, I joined in two, early 2008, right before the financial crisis. It was like kind of weird timing, uh, kind of crazy timing. So was that, was that a good time to be or a bad time? Because, you know, a lot Both. of people say that the recession is, is a bad time, but, you know, it's also uh, a good time for the, – the, the surface level is that it's a bad time, right? And there's yeah. a lot of stress going on for a lot of people. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot, just a ton of opportunities open up because there's a lot of people getting fat and happy and slow. Yep. And then everything just kind of crumbles, and so everybody has to get lean again. Kind of, go, yep. kind of going back to that quote, like uh, – you know, strong men, women make, uh, or, uh, hard times make strong men, women, uh, st strong men, women make weak times. Yep. So it's, it's like, it's kind of the secular, uh, thing where yep. everybody's got to get lean. And so you've got all these opportunities now and you can really, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you ever read gone with the wind, uh, Rhett Butler, just like, like, um, you know, there, there's a whole thing. Anybody that's read that it's a great book, but um, it's basically betting on, you know, being ready for when the recession hits that you can then take advantage of all these opportunities and like yep. get, get as fat and happy as you can now, but know that there's so many more opportunities when a recession does come. Yep. I mean, you're, that's totally spot on. It was, it was both scary, but also a fantastic time. And when you're going into the abyss, you don't know how long it's going to be. I mean, this was a pretty, a pretty sharp recovery off the, off a really deep bottom. Um, but, but yeah, at the beginning of it, it was pretty scary. Like we were worried about the fund surviving mainly because not because of our investment results, but because of investors need to pull money out because now they sure. need, they need money for other stuff. And so we started to lose capital, even though we were way outperforming the market. 2008 was the funds only down year ever, at least at that time. And, um, and we were down about half, half the amount the market was down. But we were finding just absolutely mind-blowing investment opportunities. Probably, I don't know if I'll see something like that again in, in my career or not, but uh, we're talking about you know generational buying opportunities in certain things where they're trading below cash value or, you know, um, like I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the things that we invested in was a company that owns data centers. And so obviously the growth, even back then, the growth for data was exploding the demand for data centers was exploding. Their top customers were Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. And they were 96 or 97% leased in all their data centers. And the stock went from $30 to $2 a share. And at $2 a share, it was basically pricing in that um, the company was going to lose all their tenants and go bankrupt. And yet they were at a 96, 97% uh, occupancy rate with you know top tier clients with strong balance sheets. And so we bought that and that was a 10 I'm matter. always fascinated by why that happens. Cause you, you know, you and I kind of, you know, 
talk on Twitter and you know, just vastly more about this stuff than I do. Um, but you know, there are companies where you just see, it's like, it's a good company and yeah. like Twilio is a great example. Twilio, if anyone researches it, but, um, um, I was talking to a, a college buddy yesterday on Twitter and he was talking about live person. I was like, look at Twilio. And he goes, Oh man, I could have bought Twilio at 30 back <laughs> when Uber was half their client base. And then Uber decided, you know, take care of it on their self. And I was like, I, I remember buying in then. Cause I was like, you know, yeah, Uber is a client, but like they proved their self on Uber and they still, nothing else was wrong. They just yeah. lost their biggest customer and they, they learned the lesson of, okay, we'll don't have 50% of all of your revenue coming from one customer. Yep. So they learned their lesson. That's a great time to get in. Yep. And it, and it happens every day. Oh yeah. Fear and greed in the market is constantly persistent. It creates constant opportunities in the market. Anyone who thinks markets are efficient and market can't be beaten, I believe are wrong. I mean, assuming you have the skill set to know when to take advantage of the right opportunities, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we spent, I mean, even though I was, we were all kind of freaking out, we just kept digging in and digging in on new investments. And 2009 was the fund's best year ever. We returned over 50% net, net of fees. Wow. We're way over our high watermark. Um, we, I actually started to get into some really funky stuff in distressed companies. Like we were buying up bonds of companies that were in bankruptcy for 20 cents on the dollar that looked like they were going to be paid off at, you know, more than a hundred cents on the dollar once they came out of bankruptcy and things like that. So it was really, really a fantastic, interesting time, even though in the background there was anxiety. Uh, but yeah, that really launched the fund into, into the next couple years of gaining assets. A lot of pension funds started calling us up and endowments started calling us up. Hey, can we invest money with you? And that's awesome. We turned away a lot of a lot of money because we didn't want to grow too fast, but uh, yeah, kept putting up good returns. Um, and I just love my time there because the the head of the fund, Quincy, is a, a great, brilliant guy, but he's also just a really nice guy, family guy. He's uh, no ego, despite the fact that he's done very, very well. And um, you know, he he treated treated us all very well, and he allowed me to basically go out and. Uh, look at stuff that I wanted to look at and go chase down investments that I thought were interesting. Uh, he didn't hover over me and tell me what to do day in, day out. Um, and he's just a great investor. So it was really cool. And that's really where I hit my stride and learned to be a great investor, honestly. Uh, okay. And and, and so I know you've got, I know you don't have that much more time. I know you don't have that much more time. So I'm going to like let yeah. you lead the last, you know, however much time you've got left for us to just kind of like sprint through whatever else we've got. Yeah. I mean, the next phase is basically like, despite how much I love working there, you know, I couldn't shake this feeling that I wanted to do. I started to feel that I wanted to do something that contributed a little more broadly to society instead of making wealthy people wealthy. I, I wanted to go try my hand at potentially either joining a startup or starting a startup. Um, just basically learning how to operate a business and grow a business. And so I left the hedge fund and I went out to San Francisco to really, um, hone my skill set and learn, uh, learns one of the skills that I thought was critical to startups, which was growth, uh, growth and growth marketing, and basically like learning how to acquire customers profitably and quickly for companies so that they can grow fast. And so I did that. I did a boot camp out there. And then pretty much right after that, I linked up with, uh, with Blake Garrett over at Aceable. I had, I had invested in a few startups myself with my own personal capital and one of those startups was run by a guy named Tony Aguilar, who's a great guy. He's running his second or third startup now. But he introduced me to Blake because they were uh, you know, entrepreneurs together at Capital Factory. And 
Blake had hired, just hired his first marketing guy, Joe, Joe Van, and he had about five or six people on the team, but he still needed help with a lot of analytics stuff, growth stuff, marketing stuff, and uh, mobile attribution. And so Blake and I linked up. We liked each other. He took a chance on me, honestly. I wasn't really proven uh, in you know, startups and growth yet. And Blake just thought I was, I guess he thought I was capable and took a chance on me. We started out with like a contract and then eventually I joined the team full-time. And four years later, we had, you know, I had helped grow the company. Uh, certainly I wasn't the primary driver, but along with Chad, we had, we'd had our hand in it and we helped grow that from less than 10 employees and six-figure revenues to over 100 employees, eight-figure revenues, multiple offices, Series B fundraise. And I, I wore a lot of hats during that time from, you know, doing marketing, literally just running marketing campaigns on AdWords and Spotify and Facebook and Snapchat and helping do like email marketing. I built our analytics systems at Aceable, which was a big part of what I did the last couple of years I was there. Um, even hired a full-time growth person under me, Jenny, Jenny Lai, who uh, was phenomenal. She came from UT and she was awesome. She's now in New York City working for another startup. But at Aceable, I just, it was a fantastic experience, worked hard, but also just made a lot of friends and professional acquaintances, solved a lot of challenges. And, and, and I want to, I want to be clear. I was only there for a handful of months, so I don't want to, I don't want it to seem like I got a lot of credit <laughs> on this because well, those were Tra critical Travis, months. Those, those were early days setting the foundation for the company. So I see yeah, those as very critical times. I, I just remember having our, our normal, um, you know, regular quarterly or semi-annually bro espresso and just <laughs> you showing me all the new cool stuff you were doing. I was just always like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I'll say um, a lot of the stuff we tried didn't work, but uh, the stuff that did, I think was really impactful. And uh, it's, it's the shotgun approach. I'm, I'm talking to, you know, our, our group right now. And I'm like, we can't go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. And not know how it's going to, how it's going to turn out. We've got to do a shotgun approach where you do a lot of things, but you don't go too deep. Yeah. And you see what kind of picks up and what actually shows some promise and you put more effort into those things and you go further down those rabbit holes yeah. instead of just going really deep into one and then not knowing it's going to work or not. Yeah. I mean, there's a trade-off there and you know that trade-off, which is like, you got to be able to do enough experiments and do enough testing, like you're saying, but you also got to double down on the stuff that really is working. And so, yeah, there's, there's, you can't just be constantly throwing stuff. And I know, you, and I know that's not how you meant it, but just for anyone out there who's listening, it's like shotgun yeah. approach, but in a way that's like calculated in a way where you're looking at. And like, measurable. If you're not, you if you're back. testing and you're not measuring, you're not testing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And we, um, we did some really creative stuff. I'm really proud of our creativity and, and how we figured out ways to grow. Yeah. I, I, I was always really impressed with how, how quickly that company grew and how responsibly they grew. Um, so, and, and then now we're, we're at skill, um, skill incubator. Um, yep. why don't you give us the domain? I assume it's skill incubator.com. Yep, skill incubator.com. Uh, okay. Yep. That's right. So yeah. And I mean, after Aceable, after four years, the organization was changing a lot, moving into its next big growth phase. And I was a little, you know, I was a little tired and, and ready for something new. And I'd still been thinking about whether or not I wanted to start a business of my own. Um, but I wanted to take some time too to just work on my own skill sets, maybe do a little consulting here and there, just take a little time off. But um, I, you know, I still had this connection to my former investing days and this idea in the back of my head that there's still not great content online for people to learn how to invest. 
So Skill Incubator sort of tying together both my experience at Aceable, where we worked on online education products, but also my investing experience of being in the hedge fund world. Um, and so wanted, are you going to be an Aceable content creator? Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what I'm doing is creating content, uh, creating online courses so that people can learn more and become better investors. Um, okay. And that's what I'm doing at Skill Incubator. In addition to but, being- But isn't, isn't, isn't Aceable going to be selling kind of courses at some point in time? Yeah, but uh, Aceable focuses on required education courses. And so- uh, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. But, but would you do like a Udemy course or, or are you just totally going to be, you know, on your own? Oh, the reason that we, I don't like Udemy is that they, they underprice. All the, all the courses have to be priced at $10 no matter what the subject is. Yeah. Uh, and so that doesn't leave much, uh, much revenue for the creators. And I don't think it's really fair. So but could you, but could you do your very basic one-on-one, you know, this is yep. what stocks are as a lead generation tool at Udemy for $10. So then people yeah. are like, Oh, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. I'm going to go buy yeah. lessons course. And that's, and that's, I think an interesting idea and I may explore that, but at the same time, like I want to put really, really good content out there. And I can also just sure, go to YouTube sure. and do that. And so YouTube's going to be a big That's part a good of the strategy. Point. YouTube yeah. is amazing at how, like I am a YouTube junkie now. And, and oh, I yeah. even myself, like I've, I've been talking with uh, Will Griggs about uh, creating a channel that is just about doing no code stuff like Zapier and uh, um, like building kind of on the fly. Like, okay, well, this is what the problem is. Let's kind of attack it and maybe even live stream it. Just like figure out how to do the problem live just to see what people just, just to show people like what I do on my process. Yep. Um, which I think a lot of people would be like, Oh, it's actually not that hard. You know, yep. I, there, there's that mystery of like, Oh, it seems really, really difficult, but it's actually not once you kind of just start figuring it out and moving around a little bit. Yeah. It, it's a fantastic resource and the quality spectrum is pretty broad. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of the investing stuff I think that's on there now is not great, but I'm hoping to change that. So that's the idea. But yeah, it's yeah. got huge distribution, right? Like multiple billion users out there. So uh, yeah, I think I think it's a place you have to be if you're trying to get your content out into the world. Yeah. Well, anyway, Travis, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you've been great. Um, is there anything else you want to, any, any uh, social media or websites that you want to kind of plug? I mean, you guys can definitely check me out on Twitter. I don't have my YouTube stuff really, um, really pumping out yet. So That'll be for later, but yeah, I mean, if you want to follow me on Twitter at Travis DeVitt, um, you can do that. Is it I, DeVitt? I, I've yeah, been saying DeVitt for years. Yeah, you know, I think uh, you've not actually, once corrected me ever. I've had an argument with my family about what the what the true way to say it is, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I always say okay. DeVitt because it's easier for people to hear and spell when they hear DeVitt. So, okay. Yeah. But okay. Well, Travis De DeVitt. Now I'm all confused. Whatever. Hey, say, whatever your name say is. DeVitt, say DeVitt. Either one works for me. All right. Travis <laughs> Devitt. Um, thanks for coming on. Um, you've been great. Um, everybody, this is Chad Sekonchik from Looking Backwards signing off. Thanks, Chad. Take care. Take care.